So I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 9, or actually Mark chapter 8, I'm sorry. Um, you'll be maybe delighted to know that we're, we're almost towards the end of this series in Mark. <laughs> maybe that's a good thing. I, I've enjoyed this. I, I uh, think this is a, an incredible, incredible book. Um, I was thinking this last week about, um, you know, we're hitting for summertime, and um, one of the things that... Susan's boss does during the summer times is he invites all of the employees to his house and we have a cookout, big food fest. Um, it's an incredible time actually where, uh, I mean, he has employees in uh, Pennsylvania and a lot of them in Minnesota. There's one he has in Wisconsin. Um, guess who that is? Um, is that it? Just Minnesota with Pennsylvania and Wisconsin? Um, but, but, uh, he, he invites everybody, he pays for whatever the drive in, in the hotels for everybody to stay at. Before he did that, uh, basically what he does is he, he has uh, all of his employees come in and you have how many, nine, uh, ten? They got 12 employees. But basically what he, he does is he, he tries to get everybody together. It was, it's kind of an informal gathering and more of an appreciation, we just, uh, but also to get everybody. He's created kind of like this uh, little family, if you will. And uh, part of his thing is, is that he'll just spend a brief moment on just talking about, uh, you know, some of the things that are coming up and, and uh, sharing appreciation for things that have happened in the past. But before he did that, before now, now he's having everybody go to his home and he's putting up people in their motel uh, somewhere around their home. And before he did that, um, he was, every year, he was actually sending us to um, some of these, I, I guess you would call them, uh, just kind of a, um, an, it would all kind of center around like an amusing, amusement park, you know, so there would be places for the kids to go and, or some sort of a, a water park or something like that. And, and uh, one, several years ago when our kids were young, the one place that he chose was uh, uh, this place in South Minneapolis. And... Um, it was, uh, it was a hotel there in South Minneapolis that we went to and had this big water park in it. And so um, the idea was to have this short meeting and then everybody else, the whole families, they could spend time together and be in this water park. And well, the added bonus to that was is it was about a half an hour, or I'm sorry, half a, or, or within walking distance, I'm sorry, of the Mall of America. So we were really, 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 really close. And that was a time when they had Camp Snoopy and all that. And our kids were like, like I said, they were just really young. And uh, probably four and, four and five, five, maybe five years old. And so, you know, the idea of this Camp Snoopy and, and being close to that, we had the, you know, the water park where we were. And, well, anyway, Susan and I were really excited because, you know, we just thought this, we wanted to give our, our kids these kinds of opportunities. And I was really especially, especially excited because... We just didn't take those kinds of vacations when I was growing up, and uh, that, that really wasn't a possibility for us. But, but I mean, you know, the, the Mall of America, I mean, it has this reputation for being this greatest place in America for families to visit and, you know, to shop until you drop. But, well, not that that was a deciding factor for me, right? <laughs> it wasn't. But, but there was all, I mean, there were all these restaurants. There was, uh, of course, the amusement park that was there, and then... You know, again, at the time it was Camp Snoopy, and there was all these places, all these shops, and there, there was just this great anticipation of what that would be like. 
But as soon as we walked in there, this huge place, it was just so overwhelming. Because there was just wall-to-wall -wall people. I understand that it's not that way anymore. But wall-to-wall -wall people and noise and people clawing to get to the next thing. I mean, before we got there, we were just really, really excited. But the problem was, then, is that reality and imagination collided. I had incredible high expectations. I didn't like it. I just was disappointed, and uh, it, it wasn't for me. It just wasn't all that was hyped up to be. I know some of you have been to, uh, I, I don't want to disappoint you or, or make you feel bad or anything else. It just, I, I, I really, for those of you who have been to the Mall of America, I know that some of you have, but it just had to be better than this. And I think that that had to be something like that um, for those early disciples. And I think that Peter represents them well. They they have lived with not just a, a generation, but, but they have lived with centuries of anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. This one that God had promised them, well, from Adam all the way forward, they had been living in this keen anticipation in that there was going to come one who would somehow be the one sent from God and now he was here. Jesus had come. The unfortunate thing was, he wasn't what they expected. If you look at this text in Mark chapter 8, we, we, we looked at this briefly last week, and uh, one of the things that you notice is Peter's um, his, uh, kind of shock, if you will, at what turns out to be reality, when in his mind, he has this image of what a creator is supposed to really look like. What a Messiah should become for them? We'll, we'll pick it up in verse number 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about them, about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to, him, said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. It, it's not a new question. I think we know that. I mean, who do people 
think that I am? That was his question. It, it, it showed up clear back in the sixth chapter. It wasn't so much the question as it was, you know, the anticipation, just that anticipation. But some, some people think that Jeremiah has returned. Some people think that, uh, that Elijah has returned and, or, or John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And, but the more important question is, I think, what about us? What about you? I mean, I think it's still the most important question. What, uh, I, I still think that that's what's, well, it's the more important question. What about you? Who do you think that I am? And, and Peter's response, I think, intended to re- represent the response that God was desiring from, ma- from many people is this. He says, you are the Christ. Except I think that Peter had in mind something other than what Jesus had in mind. Uh, do you notice... Jesus' comment after the rebuke, he says to Peter, he says, you don't have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. And I'm suspicious, though, that what's going on here is that Peter, like all the other Jews in that, during that time period, they believed that the Messiah was going to come and they were, and, 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 and were going to literally have the return of the land. They were going to have the return of this prosperity. They were going to have this, they have this return of, of, of dominion, of power. The, the king was going to come back, and, and he was going to be back on his throne, and, and, and they were going to go back to being this strong national kingdom. And, of course, if you think about it, Jesus fits that model perfectly because, I mean, he, he could heal people that were ill. He could raise them from the dead. He could turn bread into multiple loaves. He could, he could be everything that was needed for Israel to become strong again. But he, what he says is, he says, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm going to die. And Peter's resa- response is essentially, no, no you're not. Messiahs don't die. That's not what Messiahs do. And then there's this Incredible statement, and I, I, I have to ask you to think back to um, when we first started this series, actually, several weeks ago. But there's this incredible statement where he, or this incredible statement where he says, "Get behind me, Satan." That's not good news, by the way. I mean, that had to be a harsh comment. I mean. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you could hear that in any other way other than feeling like you somehow had been slapped right in the face. Adversary, not follower, adversary. And that comment, I think, is this most critical little phrase. He says, get behind me. And, and see, what's happening is that Peter is attempting to step out in, in front of Jesus, right? That's what he's doing. And... And, and just simply to tell Jesus, you know, this is the way things are supposed to do, that you're supposed to do things. And, and Jesus says, no, the, the place for a disciple is behind me. It's not new language to them, and, and it, it's going to be repeated again in verse number 34. But if you remember, one of the first messages in this series that what we talked about is this, this idea of what it meant to come behind, that get behind me, that language. But did you notice verse number 34? He says, you know, if you want to be my disciple, basically says you're going to have to deny yourself, the text says, 
and follow me. Literally, the word is, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us, deny yourself and follow me, come behind me. That's literally the word. But this is the word that showed up clear back in Mark chapter 1. Remember several weeks ago, here's the question. Come follow me. He was sitting out and he went and there was fish, you know, he went and saw his disciples and he said, come follow me. And that was the, the word, get behind me. Well, the text literally says, come in, in chapter one as well, come, get behind me. Because frankly, I mean, here's the bottom line, the only place for a genuine disciple, the only place that they can occupy is behind Jesus, behind the one who is the leader. So that's the bottom line, to be a disciple, and maybe just repeat this, that to be a disciple is to, here it is, is to do Jesus, do things Jesus' way. To be a disciple, I didn't write that down, did I? Is to do things Jesus' way. Right? Amen? Yes? To be a disciple is to do things Jesus' way. Um, and I think that that's what this text is trying to help us to understand, is if you want to be a disciple, you have to do things Jesus' way. If you're going to follow him, you have to then let him direct where you're going. And, and that's not what, what Peter wants to do. What Peter wants to do is he wants to get out in front of Jesus and, and determine where, where we're going, and, and Jesus says, no, ain't going to happen. If, if, if you want to be my disciple, you have to step in behind me, and you have to follow me. So I think that that little part there, I think that there's some really incredible implications um, in this text that, that I think that would be a terrible mistake for us to miss. And so I want you to look at verses 34 and 35 um, because he calls the crowd to him uh, and, and, and this is what he says. Look, look at this, this again in verses 30, 34 and 35. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. I, that, that is a simple, simple statement, very simple statement. The first thing he says is deny yourself. Not particularly an American thing to do. You can flip that to that next one. A disciple must die to self. Deny yourself. It's, it's not an American thing to do, right? We would agree with that. Um, we're just not in, we're just not into self-denial. We're, we're actually into indulgence. We're into consumer. We, we, we like stuff. We're not into self-denial. All you have to do is just pick up some sort of a magazine or watch a, any paid advertisement on television, and they're going to tell you that if you want to solve all of your problems, all you've got to do, yeah, well... You can do it without self-denial because all you have to do is take this pill or buy this machine or do this routine, and <laughs> right? And then you pick up, like, say, a fitness magazine, and 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 what do you, uh, what do you, uh, what do they tell you about fitness, Pat? Eat less, run more. Eat, let, do these, I'll take these things away, and, 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 and that sounds a lot like work, right? You know, eat less, run more. Well, I'm not, 
I, if I'm going to do that, eat less, then I have to deny myself. And I, th I, I think I like the paid advertisement that says, take this pill and you can eat everything that you want. <laughs> because it, we're, that's the, the, the bottom line, we're not in a self-denial. Well, that's just not what we like to do. We want to indulge ourselves. Jesus says, though, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to learn to deny yourself. Not a particularly present kind of implication. But I think it's better at least than the next one. Because the next one is not only deny yourself, but he says, take up your cross. I, I, I don't happen to have one here. Um, you know, one of those little gold crosses. Does anybody have one on there? You have one on there? Um, so I, I, don't, I don't have one to show you, but Susan has one. You can kind of see that shiny little gold cross. And maybe um, I, I'm noticing a couple of uh, news commentators that are starting to wear them now. <coughs> And it's, it's there. I, I think it's a statement because, the, because uh, the, the Christian faith has been up under attack and everything else. Um, but anyway, I was thinking this week, uh, you know, I, I've never been to Auschwitz. Uh, anybody here have been to Auschwitz? Um, I have read some things and I've heard some things in some interviews and stuff like that that where people who have been to southern Poland to visit that death camp they have said as they have gotten closer and closer to that that there was just something in the air that was just eerie. Something about it, just very eerie. And then they said that, you know, maybe they're a mile away and they're kind of, they're approaching this death camp. And as they got, um, they, they, there's this, uh, as they saw it, they, they come up to this place and then all of a sudden there's this large wall with wire, razor wire around the top and and uh, they, uh, that's an old picture of that. They, they have a newer one. But um, they said that there was just this looming sense of death in that camp. I mean, you could never drive down that road and not think about that. And that's all that that wall means. That, that wall means that, that, that somewhere in the vicinity of six million Jews, not to mention the the gypsies and the hundreds of thousands of others who died in, in camps just like that. But see, Jesus, when Jesus said, take up your cross, that's exactly what he had in mind. It's like the Old West, you know, when you, when you saw a gallows on the side of the road, you know, uh, you knew that, what that meant. That meant that somebody died. It, it, it was never meant to be a piece of jewelry. You know, it was never... Never a, a gimp leg, or it was never you know being married to the wrong person. It was never any of those things that we. I mean, it was never just your cross to bear. That you had this burden that you had to carry all your life. The only thing that Jesus ever meant when he said, "Take up your cross," was this: you have to die to yourself. If you want to be my disciples, you have to join me in my death. I mean, you remember where he's going because because the next thing he says is. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Well, what had he just said? I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. Come, follow me. That's, it's just amazing when you think about how that fits together. And then, and then he asks this crazy question. What will a man give for his soul? He makes this, this, this crazy paradox. If, if, if you want to save your life, then lose it. If you want to live, die. There's nothing popular, by the way, about the Christian message in a consumer culture, right? 
that wants everything to go its way, that wants to have its pick off the menu because there is no pick off of this menu. This menu is simply one item and one item only. You want to follow me? You have to die to yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow. And if you lose your life, you gain it. But that's the only way that you'll gain it, is by losing it. And, and Mark inserts that. He, uh, he has this, uh, this comment that he inserts. I, I think that he does it for the sake of, of, of future generations, not just me, but for the sake of the gospel. But, but, but he, he understands that there, there will be some times, uh, eras coming, times in the future when Jesus will not be present directly, but people will still be called to die for him and thereby, thereby gain their life. And as you know, there were more Christians killed in the, in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries put together. And I think it will only get worse in this century, not better. So Jesus says, if you want to follow, then we're going to die to ourselves. That's the first implication. Verses 36 and 37 give you the second implication. Uh, that not only do we have to die to ourselves, but we have to determine our price. Did you hear that, verse 36? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man exchange for his soul? For what price will you exchange your soul? Uh, somebody once said that we all have a price, that, every, that, that everything is for sale. Now, I, I don't know whether that's true or not. I suspect that I don't own anything that's not for sale if, it's, if the price is right. But you remember a few years ago that they made this really, well, it's been several years now, but they made this really dumb movie, and I, I, I got to tell you, and I, I, I never did see it. Just so you know, I didn't see it. But there's this dumb movie about a guy who wants to buy another man's wife for a million dollars, and they actually they kind of wrestle this thing out and make the decision that he's, he's going to let her go for one night for a million dollars? Sounds like a dumb movie, doesn't it? It was. But everything, everybody has a price. I think that's what the point of the movie was. I think that's what it was trying to make. The question is, what is your price? I mean, at what point do you and I sell out? At, at what point is it just too much to pay to be a Christian? At what point does following Jesus get to be too expensive? Some people's price isn't too high, by the way. I, I don't mean that offensively. It's just that some people will pay a pretty simple price. It's called, I want to be happy. I'm not happy right now, and so I'll do what I want in order to be happy. I'd throw away my marriage. I would give up the church or behave like friends, uh, behave like my friends want to behave, even though I know it's wrong simply because I want to be happy. And happiness is the price that they would pay to give up their faith. Uh, some people will pay an incredibly simple price just to have friends. We see that, right? They'll, they'll give up their value system. They'll give up their faith just in order to have the, the person in their school or the person in their work uh, who seems to be the popular person to be their friend. If, if being their friend means that I have to act less like a Christian and not a Christian or not a Christian at all, then I'm, then I'm willing to pay that kind of a price. And so Jesus wants to know, at what price will you sell your soul? What are you worth? If you want God's answer from that, 
just back up and look at the cross because he'll tell you how much he thinks that you're worth. Enough to send his son to die for you. Well, then in, in, in verse 38, he says this. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And, and so the third thing, the third implication, I think, of this text uh, that, that we see here is not only do we determine our price, but we have to take a stand. We have to decide if we're going to stand for him. And see, Peter, in just a few weeks, is going to be faced with the same kind of a decision and, and when he's going to be asked to stand and to not be ashamed. And, and, and you know what he's going to say, don't you? I don't know what you're talking about, he'll say. I don't know him. I never knew him. Not No, not me. No, you, you've got me mistaken for somebody else. It wasn't me. I've, I, and, and I look at that and I look what Peter does and I think to myself, you know, I've been there. Have you been there? I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. I've been there. I mean, well, I, I got two, two maybe I, I, illustrations for you that I, I think would, one of them more fun and the other one kind of a little bit more intense. But, but the first one is that se several years ago, Susan and I, when our kids were in elementary, we went over to Westby during the sit demai. We went over to the chicken queue over at the elementary school. Anybody been in the chicken queue over there? Um, really, really good. And anyway, I started walking out the door of my house, and as I was walking out the door, I, I kind of looked down, and I noticed that I had a Christian T-shirt on. And I kind of went, oh. And I looked at that shirt, and I asked myself this question, do I really want to have that shirt on and face all these parents wearing that? And I guess the thought that I was really pondering was, you know, whether or not I might offend somebody if I wear that. If, you know, will that break down some sort of a connection or some sort of a, an end that I would have that I'm trying to build with the parents of, that, that my children, uh, that my kids go to school with? The parents, uh, the parents of the kids my children go to school with. Uh, so that so that I can witness to them at some point? Is, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And, and I ended up taking it off. I really did. I just, uh, ever since that time, I've been asking myself, you know, did, did I take that off because I didn't want to offend her? Did I take that off because I was ashamed to wear it? And I, I honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. And uh, um, the other, the other one is, is then, and, and some of you remember this, uh, here a couple years ago, it was, um, I was at an in-service for, for the Westby schools, and when I got into the in-service, um, they had a special speaker there, this guy that was a, um, supposed to be a motivational speaker, and this guy was, was just talking, he was just kind of, you know, getting the char charge, uh, the, the, uh, all these teachers and all these janitors and all these bus drivers and just getting them worked up and worked up and he kind of started out kind of kind of slow and then just getting more and more exciting and starting to use some profanity and starting to use a bunch of stuff and and uh, you know the 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 I, I won't get into the whole details but some of you remember I'm saying this but he got down to the Ziana and as he's just getting louder and louder and more excited and more animated and jumping around and everything else and then he just uses the guy. God's name in vain. And he just goes, duh, duh. And it was as loud, and the room just echoed with it. 
And I was sitting there, and I jumped up on my feet like this and went, and I was visibly shaken. And I was just standing there like this going, and I'm just sitting in the middle of this group of, of teachers and everybody else, and I was just standing there going, and I didn't know what to do. I was frozen. And finally, I just kind of, after probably standing there for about a minute, I just kind of, I just grabbed my stuff and I walked out. And then I went home and I, I just was just breathing heavily and, and um, I've thought about that every day. Or most, many days, I shouldn't say every day. And I think to myself, why didn't I stand up for Jesus? Why didn't I say, no way, how dare you? Talk about my God like that. And, and I just, uh, I guess, uh, see, what I, what I do know about all of this is that the temptation for me almost every day is to, to have to make a decision. Am I going to be ashamed of Jesus? Am I going to be ashamed to associate with other Christians? Am I going to be ashamed to let everybody know what I do for a living? Actually, I could go into that a lot. I mean, that'd be easier for me to kind of just say, well, yeah, you know, I... I, I I teach kids, or you know, I teach adults, or I do. Something. It'd be easy for me to cover that up, right? See, the challenge is to decide: Am I willing to take a stand? Am I willing to identify with the church? Am I willing to 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 identify with others who are Christians? Because the bottom line, I think, is really very simple: Being a disciple means doing things His way, Jesus' way. And sometimes I think, frankly, that's hard because. His way is not always necessarily the easy way. And I think that Peter understands that. I, I, I don't think that this is something that you should look down at Peter for. I, I think that he understands. This is not what he bargained for. Reality and imagination have collided in a way that has caused him intense difficulty. And, and he's wrestling. And, you know, am I going to follow or not? Do I really believe this? And then, and then there's this, this awful statement in the, in, in the second verse of chapter 9. Six days later, we get, we get nothing, right? Uh, uh, Peter is called uh, Satan and then silence. God speaks for six days, or he doesn't speak for six days. Can you imagine? That's the first words of that, right? Six days later, after six days. Can you imagine doesn't, um, what it was like for Peter, Peter to sit around and, and wonder what's going on? You've had, I mean, we've all had those moments, you know, sitting in the hallway maybe at a hospital or something like that, waiting for the news to come from the room. This, this is awful. I mean, there's waiting and then there's waiting. Six days of silence before God finally speaks. But I want you to look at what he says, starting in verse uh, number two of chapter nine. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him to up to a high mountain where they were all alone, there he transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared in and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with him, them, except Jesus only. My guess is that your Bibles don't use, don't include the word only there. 
At least the NIB doesn't. The NIB 2012 does, but the 1984 doesn't. But it is there. I'm just telling you, it is in that text. This is so full, this text of Old Testament images, climbing up on the mountain, uh, the cloud, you've got the voice there, you've got the silence, you've got Moses, you've got Elijah. Everything that Peter understood comes together on that mountain. You see how, you see, Peter has, Peter has made enormous progress. He's, he's ready to make Jesus at this point. Remember, he, he was trying to step in front of Jesus. Now he's at least willing to, to say to, to him, or at least to recognize or to, to allow um, Jesus to be equal to Moses and to Elijah. Let's build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for the law, one for the prophets. Let me at least elevate you to equality with everything that I understand. And I think this text is so very clear. After the voice came and said, this is my son, listen to him. You know what? You saw it. They looked up and they saw no one except Jesus only. And I think that God's message was clear. Peter, you were right. He is the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are, he, don't let anybody else cloud your vision, Peter. Even as important as the law and, and the prophets are, they are not equal to the Son of God. Listen to him. Don't look at anybody else. And I think that that message, I think that that comes through loud and clear today, doesn't it? At whom are you looking? your confidence. Who do you listen to for the source of your life? See, I think that's the call of discipleship, and it's, it's, it's very, very clear. The call of discipleship is this, Jesus only. Because I don't, I, I don't depend upon myself. I don't depend upon others. I look at one place and one place only. My source of life is in Jesus Christ alone. And see, that's what he invites us to, to do every week. He does. To fix our eyes upon Jesus and to trust him. And God, in his own inimitable way, I think he puts an exclamation mark in the sky. And he says, Peter, you're right. He is who he says he is. Listen to him. And I think that becomes the challenge, doesn't it? To listen to Jesus. To really step in behind him and follow him. He invites us to follow. That's, that may mean just a simple step behind Jesus that says, you know, I, I want to just be more of a, more, do, be just a little more like a disciple. I want to be a little bit more like Jesus this week. I'm, I, I want to keep growing. It may mean that we've discovered something about being a disciple that maybe we've wrestled with and, and kind of thrown around and, and, and all of a sudden you're, 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 you're ready to make up your mind to obey Jesus, what Jesus asked you to do. Because I've had that happen where you just kind of have that, that situation where you're just wrestling with it and, and you know what the Word of God says. But it's time to follow. It may mean taking your eyes off of whoever you've been following and making a commitment to follow one person and one person only. And that has to be Jesus. Because you see, 
The bottom line is this. If you want to be a disciple, you have to do things Jesus' way. Say Jesus' way. If you're going to be a disciple, you have to do things Jesus' way. If you're going to follow him, then you have to let him direct where you're going. Amen? Let's pray. Father, that is the challenge. And we live in this generation that says we can have it both ways. We can have a lot of things. We can have our cake and we can eat it too. We can, we can uh, take this pill and we can uh, enjoy all the, the delicacies that we want. Uh, we can have all the things that we, all the things that fulfill us in life and have Jesus too. And God, the challenge I think for us today and as, as it is every single day in a culture that is depraved, that is, that is so sinful and um, the challenge is to put our eyes upon Jesus and to trust him only and to, to make him the sole owner of the things that, we're, that, that guide our lives. And I pray, God, that you would help each of us to wrestle with that each and every day. And to make Jesus the source. In Jesus' name. Amen. Someday we will get to heaven, right? Let's